And this is why my girlfriend says she can't enjoy watching movies with me. Radio Drome. Welcome to a colossal, giant, building-smashing episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is Cecil T. Robot. Uh, I, I'm, I'm flabbergasted because I just, somebody just sent me Booty Call of Cthulhu. Apparently that's a thing. <laughs> I thought it was bad when I got the DVD of Hung Wankenstein. Um, <laughs> But, okay, Peter will not be joining us this week. He had some personal shit happen to him the day before we record this, so he very rightly needs to decompress and take a day off. So it's just Cecil and I. What you guys need to do to help us out, go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. So tonight, Cecil, let's talk about giant monsters wrecking cities. There's a lot of these movies, and I'm decent friends with Ted Newsom. And years ago, he made a movie called The Naked Monster, which was a really hilarious spoof of, well, you know, these kind of giant monster movies. And it's being re-released on DVD, and I've got an interview to play with him later. Why do you like giant monsters wrecking buildings movies? Because for some reason, you've told me you don't like giant monkey movies, and that boggles my mind. I, I, at some point, I don't remember what exactly, but sometime when I was a little kid, I was watching a, uh, creature double feature and they, it was, uh, one of the UHF channels around here would run like double bills of, uh, you know, various horror films and stuff. And, uh, they often would run monster films. They would run, uh, the, you know, any number of the Godzillas and stuff. And at some point I had seen, I believe it was, I, I don't remember which one, but it was one of the Godzilla movies. And I just immediately fell in love with it because I was like, this is, this is great. There's this giant lizard with like, with breath that can, you know, just wipe out an entire city and it's just constantly smashing things up and, oh, here comes another monster and they're fighting. And it, it just, it was just, it was something, uh, at, you know, little me had never seen before. And I thought it was cool. And I had since, you know, gone on to, to watch, uh, all the various, uh, iterations of Godzilla and Gamera and a lot of the big monster films, a lot of the, you know, going on to some of the more recent things like Cloverfield. And uh, it's just, it's always kind of been a neat thing to me if it's done properly. If they kind of focus enough, uh, you know, on the monster, if they focus enough on the people, and they make it interesting, and then there's a big rock'em sock'em robot style fight, uh, you know, it's just, it's cool. It's just it's something that's always appealed to the little kid in me. Obviously, there are stuff like the, like the Lost World, the original... 1920s lost world and whatnot that predate this but those were in a dinosaur setting so i want to focus on mo you know set in a modern city first one i can really think of is literally almost the granddaddy of them all king kong 1933 now we all grew up watching king kong can you imagine what that movie was like to a 1933 audience cecil Oh my god. It like talk about things that they had never seen before. Just losing their mind. And I mean King Kong still holds up. The the remake. Peter I, I Peter Jackson, <sighs> I love you, but that remake was so bad, so miscalculated, and such an insult to the original, it made the 70s remake look great. Because, oh my god, that Peter Jackson one was so bad. You know, you, you got Godzilla then in 1954, and then in also 1954, I think what might be the best giant monster wreck in a city movie I've ever seen. I think Them is fantastic. Them ah. has more story than you would expect, has characters you care about, has great action. The ants look great. I actually think Them is shockingly good. Them is a 
astoundingly good because uh it's it's everything you said i think in general when you kind of come to people and you're like hey there's a movie about giant ants and people just oh you know like their their default is going to be like oh that's so dumb but like you go and you watch the movie and it's really good like the characters are really good the story is really good the visuals are really good like everything about it is just it's terrific it's it's a very well done movie when you would not expect it to be as good as it is and i'm sorry that little girl still creeps me out what did this them yeah they they do look terrific. They still look really good. I guess it's because the ants don't really require uh, a lot of moving parts, so to speak. So they could do a lot of things with like the carapace and kind of make it uh, just, they just look them so alien there. too. They almost they look, look so, like aliens. Yeah, yeah, they do. With you know, they're they're all black with the yeah. They, they very much look like the the xenobites or the xenobites. Uh, xenobites? Did you just combine xenomorph- Hellraiser and Alien? Yes, I combined Hellraiser and Alien. I meant xenomorphs. I'm com- I'm confusing my my God. Wow, that was that completely was all over the place. Yes, the xenomorphs. I am uh, mixing them up, but yeah, yeah, they definitely have that that alien look to them, and uh, they're just answer jerks. Like they're they're just the worst. So you can only imagine. All right, these now these little annoying things are giant. You know that that just makes it even more annoying. Which I'm not sure if that's worse or better when you have giant ants or something like 1974's Phase Four when they're just still ant-sized ants, but they're smarter than us and they're able to outsmart humanity and take over Earth. I don't know if, which is creepier. I would say probably the smaller ones because at least with a giant ant, probably die quickly. Whereas with the little guys, uh, you would probably be, you know, was it kind of death by a thousand cuts kind of thing? Yeah. Well, and then we have stuff like, you know, it came from beneath the sea with the radioactive octopus. You have tarantula, you know, John Agar fighting, obviously a giant tarantula. And then another one of my favorites from the 50s. I know you're not a big black and white guy, but come on. The Yimmer in 20 million miles to Earth? You tell me that thing is not awesome running around the city knocking buildings over and flipping over oh, cars. I'm, I like I like black and mo- white movies fine. I'm not one of those snobs that won't watch something because it's black and white. It's just that there is uh, a lot of older films that I just, for whatever reason, haven't seen. I mean, there's a lot of movies out there. And uh, I've seen a lot of uh, a lot of cool black and white uh, monster films and stuff. So I have I have not seen that apparently, but uh, I will actually I will add that to my list. Post-haste. Oh yeah, uh, Harry Howe's an alien from Venus who sneaks back on a space shuttle, and he's running around wrecking a city, and he's both kind of cute and like a I totally want a stuffed animal of this. At the same time, it's flipping cars over and stomping on people. Huh. And you got stuff like Beginning of the End, Deadly Mantis, you know, with you know radioactive bugs, the giant. Claw, which might be the dumbest looking giant monster ever. Attack of the giant Gila monster, being a lizard. Gorgo, and you know, Hila, not not Hila. Uh, sorry, it goes back to I used to work on the Ned the Dead show, and he used to intentionally pronounce it Gila because uh. of the way it's spelled. And I, I grew up with Ned the Dead saying Gila monster because he used to show that movie all the time because it's public domain. Mm-hmm. So it, that might be a Green Bay area thing. In 1962, we got, should have been the granddaddy of all giant monster movies, King Kong versus Godzilla, America versus Japan. And the movie is underwhelming on every level. <laughs> I think, I mean, now, just because there are, you know, there's a giant monster in the film does not automatically give it a pass. I've seen some pretty terrible ones. Um, like, uh, now, I think that beginning of the end with the giant cricket, or should I say giant crickets, it, it made for a really great mystery science theater episode, but like, uh, I try to watch a lot of them without, uh, the, the MST riffing because there are certain films are actually like better than they're, they're given credit for. A really good one, uh, probably one of the best that has a bad rap because of that is, uh, Squirm with the, uh, with the, the worms. Uh, Squirm's actually a really creepy, Squirm no, doesn't count. Squirm doesn't count though because they're regular sized worms. Well, I know, but what I'm saying is that they're, my reasoning for sometimes I'll watch a, uh, an MST movie, you know, without the riffing to kind of see how the movie stands on its own. And, uh, yeah, beginning of the end is, is just bad. <laughs> and because it's all the it's the force perspective monster and uh it's corny but yeah just because a giant you know it has a giant monster in it and there are some movies where they'll have uh a giant monster smashing things up and it's cool but then the rest of the movie stinks and then you know you've got all the godzilla movies we're not going to go through all of those as we get into the 70s they start changing it up like 
Night of the Lepus, where you've got giant killer bunny rabbits. And I'm not just talking like rabbits. These are, you know, household bunny rabbits that they're using. In all honesty, talk about forced perspective and the, the miniatures. I think Night of the Lepus actually looks decent for what it was trying to do for 1972, honestly. I think it's just, it's so ludicrous because rabbits are so cute. And they're and... fighting Dr. McCoy. Yeah, and, well, I mean, the thing is, you have people running and screaming and falling over, and the rabbits are just like, hop, hop, hop. Like, they, they don't look like, like, at least, oh, what's the one, uh, the giant, uh, the killer shrews. Killer shrews, they were, you know, dogs that they kind of dressed up to look like giant shrews, and they at least kind of looked menacing. Whereas this, people are running, screaming, and I'm like, I want to run the other way and hug them. I want to like, pet them. I want to pet them. They look so cute. And it's like, you got people laying on the ground, and the rabbits are jumping on top of them. And I'm like, just the cutest death ever. Yeah, I would, I would pay to lay on the ground and let rabbit or let rabbits jump on me. I love this movie. I know a lot of people don't. What about Asinitis's Tentacles, 1977, with the giant octopus that's all screwed up from the like uh, canning factory or something? It's been a few years since I've seen it. I haven't seen it in a while, but I remember liking it. I remember a lot of the you know octopus squid kind of movies. They, if done well, they're creepy, and usually you you just kind of see the tentacles. Uh, so uh, like they can kind of get away. With with certain they also things. kill a baby in the first five minutes. That's, oh wow! That's a, that, that sets a tone. I don't think God. I think if I saw it, I think I must have seen like the 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 TV version. So I don't uh, I don't recall that at all. Um, I, I mean, you know, and obviously Tentacles was influenced by Jaws. I'm leaving Jaws out because it was a big shark. But it wasn't really a giant shark. It's not like, you know, we got Meg coming it's out not, next yeah, week as, as we're recording this. It wasn't a Meg. It was just an abnormally large shark. So I'm not going to count Jaws, actually. And I know some people are going to say I'm wrong on that. No, I think uh, Jaws is not um, a giant monster movie. I would actually say to a certain degree, Deep Blue Sea might fit more in because Jaws was just a big shark. Not belittling at all. Jaws is one of the best movies ever made, in my opinion. Deep Blue Sea, there was the angle of where they were smart sharks and uh, they were growing larger. They weren't huge, but they still were larger than, uh, than you know, a regular great white. So that I would kind of put a little bit because there's an angle, whereas Jaws was just a very big persistent shark. What about in a this might be splitting hairs. What about Ghostbusters? Does the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man make that a giant monster wrecking a city movie? You know, because nobody steps on a church in my town. Hey, he's a sailor. We'll take him out. We'll get him laid. It doesn't make it a giant monster movie, but it makes it, you know, a movie with a giant monster in it. Like if if Stay Puff, if the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man was the monster throughout the film, but I mean he's really just the you know in the final act he's uh, part of the the big bad. It just popped in there because they don't even yeah, Mr. Stay Puff because really they don't even fight him per se. You know, they really kind of, they try to, and then they turn, you know, back towards Zool. So, uh, I, I, yeah, I don't really think that, uh, you know, uh, that he is really the villain per, you know, I mean, he is the, the giant monster per se. I, I would say the same thing with Tremors. You, you've got the graboids, but they're a lot, the, the little ones are for most of the movie. You don't get the big one for the bulk of the movie. So I don't even know if Tremors would count. I think Tremors would. Because they are, you know, I mean, they're giant monsters. I mean, they're, they're big sandworms. They're unlike anything we had really, uh, had before. And, um, there, there's an abnormalness to them. So yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it, it depends on how much you want to split hairs about what really qualifies as a giant monster. Cause then if you get into tremors too, then the graboids, you know, have evolved into the, um, into the little, little three foot monsters. And then, uh, you know, and it kind of, they evolve throughout their various series. So I, I don't, I don't know. Um, I think then it just kind of becomes like a monster. You know, it doesn't become a giant monster. What about then like Anaconda? It's just an abnormally large snake. Does that count as a giant monster? And it's also not wrecking a city. It's, you know, wrecking a jungle. So I, I don't know if like Anaconda counts. Ah, uh, again, I don't. 
I, I don't know. I mean, because I think normally, I think maybe this might be a better, um, litmus test for the, you know, giant monster. If it's like, if it's big enough to, to, to kill multiple people at once and, you know, it can trash, you know, a city or a jungle or wherever it is, maybe that more or less qualifies as a giant monster. Whereas something like Anaconda, it's really, um, you know, it kind of uses stealth and it takes out like one person at a time. I mean, it, it is a big monster, but I don't know if it qualifies as a giant monster okay eight-legged freaks those are giant mutated spiders there are giant mutated spiders and actually the tarantula gets like huge so i do think that that does qualify now some of them aren't i mean some of them are big but i wouldn't qualify them as some giant. Of them are the size of dogs which is you right. know, for a spider pretty giant uh, I forget where I heard it, but they said if spiders were the size of, uh, of a, I think it was a uh, black lab, uh, humans would be extinct. Okay. Rain of fire. I, I mean, they're, they're normal sized for dragons, but since dragons are not normal, I mean, they are running around wrecking cities and killing people. They're, they wreck Matthew McConaughey. They do. That was an awesome scene. Cause it's like, oh, yeah, Matthew McConaughey. Oh, well. He's the hero. <laughs> oh, okay. He he's, he's, he's it. lunch. Okay. I, I don't know. I mean, that kind of delves more. It, it, it's more of a fantasy. That, that's a tough one. Uh, I don't know. It's, it, that's kind of, I guess I would probably go like 50, 50. I'd probably say, uh, you know, 50% fantasy, 50% giant monster. Well, then let's go back to spiders. Big ass spider. It's, ex the movie is exactly what the title said it was. Yeah. It's They're a, fighting a, a big ass spider. They are fighting a big ass spider. And, uh, and I believe that, that, didn't that big ass spider eat Lloyd Kaufman? I can't remember if it ate him or if it stepped on him. It's been a while I, it, since I've seen it, but it, yeah. it, it, a big ass spider does kill Lloyd Kaufman. <laughs> big ass spider does kill Lloyd, poor Lloyd Kaufman at some point. I, I, I want to talk about like something that's with modern giant monster movies. You've got stuff like Cloverfield. Now, Cloverfield, I think, is a great idea and a terrible movie. I love the idea of it's a giant monster movie, it's like a kaiju movie, but from the ground level, from your average person running for their life. I love that idea. The fact that they made it found footage is what wrecks that movie. One, you hate every single one of these characters. Two, you cannot stand the camera work. Three, the story, it should have just stuck to what the characters know, because they keep having to edit in all of this. You know, the military found this, a newscast. I, I think Cloverfield was a good idea that they completely f up. I don't know. I like Cloverfield a lot. I can't um, stand the movie. I think the idea is fine. The movie is terrible. Yeah, I can understand people not liking it, but uh, I think it's cool. I think it's a it is a giant monster movie told from the perspective of the person on the street. And uh, I think it's uh, the people don't annoy me all that much. Um, I know a lot of people hated them, but uh, I've seen found footage movies where uh, the people are 10 times worse than that. Well, but it was neat. I thought it looked great. I liked the concept of uh, it wasn't just. The Cloverfield monster, there were the little par parasites that fell off of it that were also, you know, something they had to deal with. I liked all the little hidden Easter eggs that were telling the story, like behind the story while it was going on. It was, uh, it was really neat. I, I liked it. I liked it a lot. See, I think there were there were two major problems going into Cloverfield. Well, three if you count the fact that they didn't know how to write characters we gave a shit about. The one problem is something that all found footage movies seem to have. Why are you still taping? Run away! Drop the camera! Because you need to have everything on, uh, you know, from the cameraman's perspective, they keep recording when no one would really do that. That always bothers me. And then the fact that just the it's such a bad movie it's so poorly directed because you're like okay how did they get to why did the, what what oh god so that's why i said cloverfield great idea to bring a ground level to a giant monster movie god did you screw this up considering we're on like <laughs> we're still getting cloverfield sequels in you know in name only but i mean the first I mean, it was a big blockbuster. It did very well. And, uh, I wouldn't say that they, I mean, I, I'm not gauging 
the amount of money it made by the quality. But I'm just saying is that for uh, coming from the perspective of the theater, it was, you know, it was a success. I still I think it was good. I liked it. And uh, I I'm kind of glad they went in the direction that they're doing with the sequels where they're kind of doing like uh, they're treating it like a, um, an anthology series because uh, I don't think I would. I don't know how a, a sequel to that would work. It'd be probably another found footage thing, and I really don't think I want to see that. So I don't know. I I I don't know. I liked it. I don't think they screwed anything up. And uh, but I do agree with you. The found footage thing. It didn't bother me as much in Cloverfield, but there are some movies where I'm like, why are you why are you still filming? Or uh, there was one I was watching where they're filming all of the preliminary stuff like like there's two characters sleeping and they're filming that and there's and i'm like no but why why would anyone film this like it doesn't make well, sense well I, I mean like you know in cloverfield we're being chased by giant monsters but i gotta keep turning the camera around because you know we because the audience needs to see this no you're running away from the monster you're not going but wait wait they're not in focus I, I'm willing to, to give them a little bit of, of suspension and disbelief in that aspect, but sometimes it's just like, it's really, like I said, with, with the one, I don't remember which movie it was, but there's been a few found footage films where they're filming them driving and they're film, and it's like, this is all, this basically shows that the person who's directing this doesn't know how to do a found footage film. They want to do a regular film, but they can only do a found footage film. So they're filming all this superfluous stuff. If somebody was going to be filming a documentary about something, they wouldn't be filming all of this additional nonsense but then we also have the the elephant in the room as it is pacific rim this has really brought the kaiju film back you know from an american perspective oh my god the pacific rim movies are terrible man okay i didn't see the first one when it came out my girlfriend wanted to rent the second one when that came out on video and i said okay we can do that but i haven't seen the first one yet so we rented them both and i watched both pacific rim and pacific rim 2 or pacific rim uprising whatever on the same day we watched them back to back pacific rim Rim was better because Del Toro made it look good. These are terrible movies, man. What what is the draw of these things? Uh I I don't I don't know because I mean I haven't seen the second one because the first one was really the first time I was ever disappointed in a Guillermo del Toro movie. I adore del Toro stuff. Always found it interesting. Uh even Mimic, which was really screwed up by the studio, uh I still thought that the foundation was there and I liked it. He had put out so much good stuff and I was like, oh, Del Toro doing a giant monster movie. This is going to be cool. And not just uh, giant monsters, giant robots fighting giant monsters, giant robots fighting giant monsters. This is going to be terrific. And it was such a bore fest. Like it was also so cliche. Every character in this, after spending a minute with them, you're like, I know their entire story arc. Every single character, everything in this movie, if you've ever seen a giant monster or giant robot movie, you're like, I know exactly where this is going. I know exactly what's going to happen. I mean, there's no surprises, but also it's really poorly written. Okay, let's look at the logic of Pacific Rim, Cecil, okay? So you've got the rift, which is letting the kaiju in from the other dimension, right? The rift doesn't move. They know exactly where it is. So every time a monster comes through the rift, they send out the kaijus and the, and the monsters are already wrecking cities and stuff like that. Why not just place automatic guns at the rift? A monster sticks its head out, gets its head blown off, or just take the Jaegers and have them stand there. Why bring them back to port and then, oh my god, oh, another monster, we gotta scramble. Um, How about using the big laser sword thing, which you only, of course, use in the final battle, because of course you do. Why not just have the Jaeger standing there, giant monster sticks its head out, you cut its head off. Why? You wouldn't have a movie otherwise. If you thought this through like real people would, you wouldn't have a movie. And this is why my girlfriend says she can't enjoy watching movies with me i think uh yeah I'm, I'm on board with a lot of the same problems because i'm i'm what like normally when when i'm watching a movie i don't think about such things i'll the first time i'm watching it i'm just trying to focus on the film itself and if something sticks out like that then that's really where i'm like okay this is so bad that it's kind of pulling me out of the movie where like you said it's like why why did they use the sword that cuts through everything at the end of the movie you know why didn't they, they even called this? it a last resort well it seemed to work pretty fucking good yeah, it seemed to have a, a pretty good ratio that, like, like, why wouldn't you be using this the entire time? I, I had a lot of problems with it. Uh, 
but I just, I was frustrated with how people were just flipping out about how amazing it was. And then it wasn't good at all. And so I had really no interest in seeing the sequel, especially because Del Toro wasn't doing the sequel. The sequel had half the budget and half the, half the original cast. Ron Perlman survives Pacific Rim if you watch past the credits. So he's the most interesting character in the film. So of course you're not going to bring Ron Perlman back. Why would you? Well, maybe they couldn't afford him. Or maybe he was doing something else. Or maybe he simply didn't want to come back. Because he may, you know what? He has a really good relationship with Del Toro. Maybe he wasn't coming back because Del Toro wasn't directing. Maybe. I'm just saying he was the most interesting character in the original film. Now, we've... I left out specifically the Jurassic World and Jurassic Park movies because really only in Lost World and only in, you know, the end of it is it wrecking a city. So I'm not really going to add those. You've got the modern Godzilla films. You know, we got Godzilla 2 coming out, Godzilla King of the Monsters, whatever, coming out next year, I think. And we got Godzilla, which was, you know, a disappointing movie. Why can't you actually put Godzilla in Godzilla's movie? It's a two-hour and six-minute movie. He's in 11 minutes of his own movie. It shouldn't have been called Godzilla then. Well, 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 well hold on. Godzilla, For to, to be fair, there have been plenty of Godzilla movies where there has not been very much Godzilla. There have been, I mean, I, I don't have the chart in front of me, but there was a chart that had all the various Godzilla movies. And I think like the one that had the most Godzilla was the, what was it, Godzilla 2000, which was a gigantic pile of crap. It was like um, crap through a goose. I actually liked, was it 2014 Godzilla? Yeah. Uh, I, I thought it was, I, I, I thought it was cool. It. I, I actually really enjoyed it. I mean, it was uh, not, it, it was a, it was a slight, you know, it was an updated, little more serious version of, uh, of Godzilla. And, uh, I liked it for what it was. I thought it was really cool. And a lot of people were pissed because, you know, a certain, you know, famous actor died, uh, you know, not in reality, but in the movie. And it was like, oh, well, you know, yeah, you're going to use him as the star and then kill him. And it's like, yeah, because nobody was expecting it. Like, but no, no, th that I understood because the marketing made this a Brian Cranston film. Yeah, but that's the marketing's fault. That's you know, not the movie's but, fault. The movie has no control over the marketing. But also the fact that the movie's just really poorly written. I mean, Brian Cranston's son is the ol is the sole survivor of four different Godzilla attacks, and at that point I'm going, "Oh, fuck you." He's literally the only person that keeps surviving. I'm like, "Is it main character immunity? What the hell is this?" Eh, I liked it. I don't know. Don't what to edit me, boy. I'll, eh, all I want. You know, but then we got Kong Skull Island. I loved Kong Skull Island. First of all, the fact that fighting King Kong in a Vietnam-era setting, how would this not have been done before 2017? It seems so perfect. Samuel Jackson, Captain Marvel, and Loki fighting King Kong during Vietnam. How is this not awesome? I was genuinely surprised because I had heard, you know, I, I thought the trailers kind of were like, eh. And, and I'm just, as I've said in many an episode, I don't like giant monkey movies. When uh, everybody was seeing the movie and raving about how good it was, I, you know, I'm like, all right, I'll check it out, see. And I was legitimately surprised. I thought the characters were likable. I thought it was believable. I thought uh, Kong actually looked fantastic. I thought the graphicness they were able to get away with in a PG-13 movie was actually kind of shocking. It was pretty shocking what they were able to get away with. I thought uh, they, it they has did. A, it has a cannibal holocaust reference in it, for God's sake. A visual yeah. reference. A visual cannibal holocaust reference in a PG-13 movie. That's got to be a, a first. It's It's very well done. Uh, I thought it was, uh, that it was terrific and, uh, I liked it a lot and, uh, just, uh, it's, it's a surprisingly good movie and it's probably, I would definitely, I mean, although I will say even that is definitely better than Godzilla. That, that is definitely better than, you know, Godzilla that we got from a couple years ago, not better than, you know, the old school Godzilla. Now we're going to play an interview I did with Ted Newsom. Now the naked monster is a different sort of movie. He admits right in the interview, he did it airplane style with, you know, it's, it's a Loving spoof of these movies. It's, you know, very low budget, intentionally so, because, you know, lots of these films didn't have great special effects, so intentionally they don't have great special effects. But it's not done in that ha-ha-ha kind of way. He has the greatest conceit ever for this film. I know you haven't seen this one yet, Cecil. So Kenneth Toby was one of those actors from, like, you know, the original thing from Another World. It came from the bottom of the sea, stuff like that. You know, he played, he fought 
monsters in the 1950s. So Newsom came up with the amazing conceit, what if Kenneth Toby was playing the same character in all of those movies? And now, as an old man in the 80s, a new monster shows up. No one knows how to deal with it, so they have to bring him out of retirement to teach the new generation how to fight giant monsters. That's a brilliant conceit for a monster movie spoof, isn't it? Mm, It's pretty cool. You know, and then he's got John Agar and Jack Arnold and Les Tremaine. You know, all these old giant monster movie fighting people from the 50s and 60s and all that. They all are basically playing their old characters again in this movie. Here's Ted Newsom talking about the re-release and the history of The Naked Monster. Why did you make The Naked Monster in the first place? And I guess the the follow-up initially would be, why are you re-releasing it now? When I started out, I was writing... uh... I wanted to write features, anything, for newspapers, films, and whatever. The first one I requested to do to my editor was an interview with Kenneth Toby. For those who don't know, Ken Toby was the star of several kind of seminal 1950s sci-fi films. The Thing, of course, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, It Came from Beneath the Sea, The Vampire. He was in a lot of other stuff, too. TV series called The Whirly Birds, which I adored. And he was kind of a mainstay in the 50s and into the 60s. Uh, in the 60s, he was uh, did about six or ten appearances in I Spy as the section chief, the boss to Robert Culp and Bill Cosby. He worked less often as he grew older, but he was a marvelous actor. And I, I specifically said to my editor, to whom I had only sold one story at that time, and she said, did you have any ideas? And I said, uh, well, yeah, There's. Uh, I want to do an interview with an actor named Kenneth Toby. And she said, oh, Whirly Birds, wow, that would be great, man. So that was that. So we met, and we had a nice conversation. And uh, at the end of the conversation, I said, you know, one of these days, I'm going to do a movie where you're an old monster fighter, and one of the young guys comes up with some stupid idea, and and you tell him, you know, that's ridiculous. I've been fighting monsters before you were born. I know what I'm doing. And he just laughed. He said, okay, one of these days. And then four or five years went by, and uh, a friend of mine bet me that I couldn't make a movie for $5,000. He put it up, but I had to do it for that. I lost the bet, as it was, but I took a script that I had done, a feature script, and cut it down. I took some of the, kept some of the gags and kept some of the setup and, uh, decided that I was going to do, uh, you know, what I, what I intended to do. And I called Ken Toby and I said, can you give me a couple of days? He said, oh, sure. And, uh, I got the rest of the cast together. Ron Wilson, who, uh, plays the sheriff in the movie, was wonderful at improv comedy. Uh, who I'd always wanted to use one way or the other, but I, I had seen him as like the, you know, the, uh, like the, the funny deputy or something with a, a sheriff kind of on the, uh, you know, the lines of Charles Drake and it, it came from outer space. Asked, uh, John Goodwin, who I had seen in a short done by a friend of mine at school called Recorded Live, which is just him versus a big mass of videotape with a lot of stop motion in it and so forth. And and I thought he was wonderful. And I called him and I said, uh, John, you want to make a giant monster movie with Kenneth Toby? And he said, yes. I, I had met Brick Stevens, who had done not much at the time, one or two movies with uh, with minor little parts. But I, I met her. I thought she was smart. I figured she could do comedy. And I, I said, look, I'm going to write this with you in mind. You know, this is a the most beautiful ichthyopaleontologist in the world. She said, okay, I'm in. And I called a, a friend of uh, Ron Wilson's, Kathy Kahn, who's a wonderful, brilliant improv comedian. And I said, I got a part for you. She said, okay. So that was that was essentially the core of it. I wanted to do a spoof on movies that I loved. A lot of people do it. And one of the things that, uh, that I've noticed on that and is that none of them do it right. The one that I emulated at the time was Airplane, because it's it's absolutely deadpan. Uh, it's straight faced. It's doing it's doing a melodrama. It happens that it's a ridiculous melodrama, but nobody's nobody's copying to it. Occasionally, you'll get some looks at the camera, like Jesus Christ, what are we doing? But no, you're essentially playing it absolutely straight. And I, well, that's the way you have to do it, and that's never the way people do it. They, you know, they, you know, it's nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Isn't this stupid? You know, those dumb old films. Well, that's death to comedy. That's not parody. That's burlesque. Not at all what I had in mind. I actually thought about doing something serious along those lines, like a sequel to The Thing, the, the, the 1951 picture, where 
something, you know, like a giant circular crop circle is found somewhere in the Caribbean on an island. And some people go down, and the pilot is Pat Henry from the original. And he catches on. He says, I've seen this before. Confronted with this, only there's not just one. There's an army of these f***ers. You know, I thought, well, God, hey, that'd be cool. Anyway, so I wrote the thing for Ken, and uh, with the other two and probably three people in mind, I wrote the rest of it. And then I started gathering uh, little that people for little cameos. John Agar, I think, was the second. I knew that my friend Wayne Berwick uh, had connections to both Les Tremaine and John Harmon. And we got family connection because Wayne's dad was Irv Berwick, who was a teacher of mine. Irv is the guy who did Monster from Piedras Blankness. And Wayne's in it, in fact. He's, he's a, a little boy, little Billy or Bobby or Johnny or whatever it is. And I knew Wayne could direct you know, as well as I could. I said, how would you like to direct it? He said, oh, sure, fine. I said, okay, well, you know, let's make sure we get John Harmon and uh, Lester Maine. He said, okay. So armed with that, that and uh, Ann Robinson, uh, Forey Ackerman, of course. Uh, Robert Shane, because I knew him. I'd been in the Army with his son, as it turned out. I didn't even realize it at the time. I should have. Uh, the guy's name was Robert Shane. Uh, you know, he didn't walk around saying, hey, my dad was in Superman. And he never mentioned it. With those people in mind, Bob Burns, because he had this marvelous guerrilla suit, well, okay, we'll have guerrilla warfare. So we shot over uh, over a period of probably two months or three months. And, you know, if there could be a holiday, we'd come up, we'd get together for half a day or whatever. It was a, a very relaxed deal. Ultimate goal of simply doing something where we could take it in and pitch it as an idea or say, here's what we did on no money at all. We'd like to do this, that, and the other thing. Or for the actors to have something to put on their reel to show that they can perform. And that's uh, that's where it was at. It took months and months to finally edit it together. And uh, uh, and yeah, I, we shot it on Super 8 originally, Super 8 single system, sometimes double system, which was, uh, which was, it, it visually is comparatively this poor to, to 35 millimeter, but it looked like the kind of movie that you'd watch, you know, in days gone by on an independent TV station at about two o'clock in the morning. Last the old 16 millimeter print that's seen way better days with jumps and stops and, uh, and, uh, splice marks. And, uh, and that was okay in this case. The visual look whether you intended it or not, you know, just because of the film stock, I think the visual look really does evoke that late night UHF sort of viewing. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. you know, to our, to the younger listeners, they might not even know what that is anymore, you know? Yeah, that's, that's pity. I mean, there, there was a, I forget the guy's name, Odenkirk, I think, the guy that did, uh, Kung Fu parody. He shot new stuff and intercut his, his stuff, his close-ups with some uh, some old Hong Kong Chopsaki movie. Uh, Bob Odenkirk, I think it was. This is uh, ten years ago, maybe fifteen. Now. His idea was to uh, to take you know a crappy print of these couple of things and and then do inserts and make them just as crappy with with, with scratch marks and muck on it and, and so forth. As if you were watching something you'd see at a drive-in, you know, circa 1975 or 80, which is a funny idea. And apparently the distributor said, what the hell are you doing? And he explained. He said, then they said, well, no, 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 this is a movie. You have to make it look good. And so they, they went back and, and it was, looks, it looks pristine now. The gags still work, but that's not how he originally saw it. He wanted it to look like, you know, you found this in the back of a drive-in somewhere. Let's take a look at this old movie. Uh, and and you, I, I'm glad that you like it the way it is. It was just given what we had to do in the first place. Always the saving grace that since we were making fun, with, having fun with movies that didn't have a hell of a lot of money at the time, we'd make use of that. And uh, it's that's it, it's kind of forgiving uh, that. Well, well, geez, that looks cheap. Well, yeah. I actually kind of like the, and I mean this in the best way, the randomness of it. Like some things, <laughs> some things are clearly, you know, blue screened. Other times, you, you know, you can't even afford the monsters. It's literally action figures fighting. And then mm-hmm. it'll cut to, yep. you know, close ups of the monsters and then back to action figures. And then sometimes mm-hmm. it's an obvious matte painting. It has a weird mm-hmm. randomness to it that is really endearing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll accept that. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I wish, uh, I kind of, uh, thank you. I kind of wish we would have had somebody else other than me to do the effects. Originally, uh, uh, I worked with a guy named Mark Wolf, L-O-L-O-W-O-L-F, 
who did the effects. Now, even before that, I always figured, well, we, we have to do it with a guy in a monster suit. It's the only way to get all these all these things cheaply. And I called the one guy I knew who had a monster suit, or several of them, John Beekler. I explained what we needed. And I said, do you have something laying around that we can use? And he, he said, oh, I don't know. Well, maybe. I got like a half a suit here, the upper half. Uh, oh, I, I could let you have that for a couple of days. And I thought, well, Al, that's helpful. We can shoot uh, a monster from the waist up only, um, and uh, we can have it for two days. Yeah, okay, thank you very much, John. Mark Wolf, who I knew from Cinefantastique magazine, that, that occurred to me, and I sat down with him. And uh, and and we um, we worked that out. He said, I said, well, you know, we probably have to start with a monster. I don't want you to have to build the thing up. So as he showed me the, some of the models that he had done, and he was very proud of this one model he did for a, a little short called The Age of Mammals. A mastodon, a woolly mammoth, or whatever, which had nice air on it and beautifully done uh, tusks and a, and a movable snout and, and all that. What do you call it? And, uh, and the thing is, it only it's only in one shot in that movie that it walks right to left. Well, knowing that that was the only thing it was going to do, of course, Mark decided sensibly, he only has to do half of the model. He'll do the half that faces the camera, and he won't bother with the back half. So he was just so proud of that, and I, you know, I turned it around and said, it's only half here. Well, yeah, I didn't have to do the rest of it. I said, well, we can't have that. We can't have every monster shot limited to walking right to left. He can't even look forward. You know, you can't have a close-up of it because you got to cheat. I mean, this is not going to work. I don't know why. It's a good model. So he had this other thing, this kind of Eric esque creature, bipedal with a with a tail and and three eyes and uh, and skin sort of like the thing in uh, uh, in the Fantastic Four. And I thought, well, that's good. And it was a background model for something for some other project that he did. But it had had fingers and a hand and hooves and everything. Hey, it was marvelous. It took an age, an absolute age. Yeah, you know, it took him months to do the animation. Not that the animation is bad. I, you know, it's super eight stuff, so we were limited to the camera that I had. We burned out the motor twice on that thing. But uh, it came out pretty good. We ended up doing a lot of cheats. The thing just kind of bouncing up and down, left to right or right to left, looking like it's walking, sort of. And little tiny twists and turns. It was imperfect, but it was what we could do to get it finished. And when I went to redo it, I said, all right, back to square one. I'm going to do it as a monster suit. And I found this this thing to a friend, went down, bought it for a hundred dollars, made some uh, made some legs, and bought some some uh, hands and uh, feet, and uh, and and there we go. I did it all myself. It's not poor monster, um, our monster. Uh, it it reminds me like if if we had an open casting call in you know Variety or the Hollywood Reporter or something, and said wanted sixty foot giant monster for sci fi film, small money and lunch. We had auditions, and this one showed up. Okay, you're it. We give him the job. That's pretty much how I consider this thing. I, you know, it's just we didn't have any choice. We got this one. This is what we'll do, and it, I think it worked out because it's so silly. It's, a, it's so stupid looking. I mean, it looks like it's a stupid creature, which I think works for it. If it could speak, it would say, "Duh." Yeah, it works for the tone of the the humor because, as you said, it's got a lot of Zucker Brothers style humor. A lot of, I, I guess, literal jokes. A lot of, yeah. A lot of wordplay, most of that from Brink Stevens, because in real life she is incredibly intelligent, but, you know, she didn't have a reputation in films at that time for playing super intelligent characters. It yeah. was, it's really great to hear her just rattling off all of these, you know, remember how Leslie Nielsen sort of carried the seriousness of Airplane? That's mm -hmm. Brink in this. Yeah. You know, she's rattling yeah. off all these serious jokes and playing it very seriously. I agree. She's, uh, she, she, I adore her. I always have, and um, it was fun when, especially in the second round, when we went back and reshot a whole bunch of stuff, reshot additional stuff, knowing her by then, it was fun to give her something to do. A lot of the stuff she's done, God knows, she's done a, a lot of work. 100, 150, 200 films, something like that. Uh, very rarely does the material come up to the level of what she can actually do with it. It's pretty, it's most often pretty facile. 
it's not challenging. And here, you know, she's she has to be smart and and sexy and has a bunch of nonsense to say. Yeah, and keep a straight face. I think that's that's quite an achievement. And she does a shower scene, so there. And th- mm-hmm. there was an in joke I really liked, and it's an in joke I'm going to wager people like me are the only ones who are going to get. At one point, a character is reading a weird tales magazine that I believe yes. you edited that Brink is on the cover of. I forget. Well, I must have brought it. I must have brought it because that was Wayne's house. I doubt he would have had a copy of it. So I must. Yeah, we'll do this. Pretty in. The thing about in jokes, and we've got a, yeah, a crap load of them. What I tried to do, and I think is the best way to do in jokes, is to make sure there's an out joke to go with it. That it's a, if it's a joke, a gag, then let it be accessible to anybody. Now, if somebody else sees the second gag underneath, great. But otherwise, it's just this weird non sequitur. What, you know, what the average person, not you or me or, or monster movie fan, the a- average person would see in that scene is an old man sitting in a rocking chair reading a magazine. If you look a little closer, oh, he's reading a horror magazine. Oh, okay, all right, so something spooky's going to happen. And then the, the thing closed. All right, I mean, that works on that level. Now, if you look carefully and you know, well, wait a minute, that's a magazine with Brink Stevens on the cover. Hey, wait a minute, the guy that did this film was one of the editors. You know, that's, that's an entirely, a second, the second level. Many of, I think, of the, uh, of the verbal gags, the references to, uh, to older films work like that. The, uh, superficially, they just sound silly, uh, or ridiculous. And then when you know, well, wait a minute, that's a, that's a specific reference to the slime people. You know, there's the, the second level, and then you look a second laugh. I think a lot of that comes from the, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know if stunt casting is the right word, but the cameos like John Agar and, Je- you know, Jack Arnold and all that, 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 that kind of stuff, you know, you, you get the added joke like, oh, you know, John Agar is doing this just like he always did in all, you know, tarantula and all this stuff. Right. But mm-hmm. you don't have to get, you don't have to go, that's John Agar and here's why this works to just have yeah. this character's acting funny in this context. Absolutely. That to me is, uh, is more more important that, that you're entertaining the audience, not necessarily one out of a hundred people that's going to get the in joke. Give them an in joke and an out joke. Parenthetically, here I just saw Ant Man. Uh, I hadn't been to the movies in ages, and my my friend Trudy said, "Want to go see a movie?" And I said, "Sure." And, went. and in the end of that colossal effects laden uh, thing at the end of the movie, there's a place where Ant Giant Man becomes a little smaller, and there's a, a, a single shot of three police running toward camera and pointing the pointing their guns at camera. And I swear to God, the middle one is Bobcat Goldthwait because I, I and just before he pulls his or points his gun, you can hear this kind of Bobcat uh, snort going, "Yay!" You know, whatever it is. And I thought, and I looked, and I can't find any reference to it. I think I'm pretty sure it's him. I mean, it, number one, it sounds like him before I recognized him, and then I saw him, and I thought, well, that's him. There's no reference to it. The thing is, if I'm if I'm correct, that's a gag that works on two levels. You know, the gag works, you know, whoever you've got doing it. You know, the gag is what it is. You know, the cops are baffled, and they point their guns. But the secondary gag is, ah, that's Goldthwait. I don't think it's enough to have someone show up. Oh, look, at that's such and such. Isn't that funny? That, to me, drives me crazy about Mad, 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 Mad World cameos, specifically the Three Stooges. Why is it funny? Because the Three Stooges are in fireman outfits, ready to do something. That's it. The one shot. Okay, they're ready. Wait a minute. You're going to set up the thing that we're supposed to laugh in anticipation because we know they might do something funny? Because that's it. They're not in anything. They didn't shoot anything else. It's just, oh, look, it's the Three Stooges. Well, fuck me. You know, that's, you know, what am I supposed to I just, that's so stupid. Pointless waste of, uh, waste of time. It's also an imposition on the audience. You know, it's a, you know, they're not doing anything. Why are, why are they there? At least in these things, I have people do things. So what was the reaction when the movie came out? Uh, well, I, I had watched it, um, in the living room of Mark Wolf's house with a couple of, with his in-laws and they laughed. They didn't know the, they didn't get the in-jokes. They just got the out-jokes. They laughed. I know, okay, well, so far so good. We had a screening at a place called SCTV in, in LA on Santa Monica Boulevard. The cast and crew, but also, you know, a lot of other people, probably 50 or 60 people, they laughed at the right places. You know, they cheered when 
Ken Toby becomes Colonel Henry again. Now, the one exception to that was Robert Shane, who was by then nearly legally blind, and he'd been sitting through this thing for 20 minutes up front. It was a small place, so everybody could hear anybody else. Looked at his wife and said loudly enough for everybody to hear, Is there a plot to this? And, uh, of course, the answer is no. But but basically, it went over okay. It, It ran about an hour at that point. It was a lot of padding. Joe Dante... God bless him, sent him a copy, and he said, uh, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, that, that's really good. You got to cut it down to half an hour and send it out on video. You know, considering what we wanted to do was cut it up to an hour and a half and send it on video. It wasn't exactly what I wanted to hear, but it was nice that he, you know, it was nice that he liked it. And it was nice that he made his own in Mant, uh, you know, with several million more dollars than we had. The critical opinion actually has been pretty good. There have been some naysayers, but most people see through the, uh, uh, the, the obvious budget limitations and the, and the technical crudities and, and the sort and see what we're trying to do. And that's, that's very rewarding because it's, it's not the usual, let's make fun of those crappy old movies shtick. It is a love letter to my childhood. And, and that, and people see that and that comes through. I'm really happy for that. So why is it being re-released now? Well, it's available on, uh, on Amazon now. Maybe, um, Oh, we had, well, let me, uh, let me back up by saying we released it once on, uh, on DVD. Uh, oh, well, I'll get up to that. Uh, we, the whole purpose of the thing originally was to do it in black and white because all the, most of the films in the 50s of these films in the 60s were in black and white. And, uh, after pitching it as a real movie for years and always getting just right to the, the step of, okay, we're going to go, and then getting knocked back. I, I grew tired of it, because it's like falling in love with the same woman over and over. You know she's going to, you know, Lucy's going to pull that football out from under you when you go to kick it, but you go ahead and do it. And I just said, I can't do this anymore. But then I realized, well, wait a minute, I can't even get the cast that I wanted anymore. It's now 10, 15 years down the line. Several of them have died. More of them are pushing late 70s or early 80s. You know, it's just, I can't do it anymore. But I realized I already have it. If I shoot some additional scenes and use the original footage, use the color footage, because we shot it all in color, we can actually do this of sorts. So I did. And ultimately, after several years of that, I got a video deal. But the video deal, the the uh, company which accepted it and put it out, managed to uh, make a bunch of money on it and go bankrupt, which is a little upsetting. Uh, I happened to a friend of mine, too, friends of mine, who made Microwave Massacre. They also, the company also bought that and sent it out and made a bunch of money on it and went bankrupt. So it was pretty discouraging. Uh, anyway, so the, the contract finally expired, and I said, all right, well, let's do this again, if we can. And uh, and this is it. So this is the this is the big official re-release. Just look for the naked monster and look for the, you know, the, the cool box. This has uh, a big... Close up of Kenneth Toby and Brink Stevens and our giant monster. That's the the new box. Yeah, the one I have has got like a blue background. Right, right. I remember. According to the Amazon Marketplace, it's worth like nine hundred bucks, according to what some people are yeah, asking. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, to somebody, I guess, not to me, but I, if somebody wants to pay nine hundred bucks for it, I'll sell them one. Yeah, I got my copy these... from you. Oh well, there you go. <laughs> Did I charge you nine hundred bucks? No, you autographed it though too. So with that, that was oh, really what cool. A fool, what a fool I was! Sorry, right, so I'm getting it, paid off. I'm getting paid off in in publicity. Hey, you can die from exposure, man. <laughs> yeah. So you can get that at Amazon, and you can you know Ted's on Facebook and all that. I highly recommend the Naked Monster. Remember, I don't like anything, and I thought the movie was really really funny. So you guys should check it out. Don't do not. Do not look for the terrible trailer from Anthem Films that's on YouTube, though. Ted hates that trailer, and it does not represent the movie. So the previous DVD released by Anthem, that's the trailer that you'll find. Ignore that. So, Cecil, back to our topic. With Rampage having, you know, just come out on video and had been out recently, do you think Rampage is bringing back the giant monster movie? Because, I mean, obviously, like, you know, we got Godzilla King of the Monsters coming out, and then after that, King Kong versus Godzilla. I don't know 
Pacific Rim 2 definitely sets up a third Pacific Rim movie, but Pacific Rim 2 underperformed, so I don't know if there will be a third one. Are we in a new giant monster era with something like Rampage? Uh, possibly. I don't think uh, they were anticipating Rampage to be uh, quite a hit like it was, but it did really well. Um, I, I personally wasn't expecting it to do well, but, uh, you know, it, it did, surprisingly. Yeah, it was not bad. I heard it was better than, a lot of people said it was better than it had any right to be, but that it was like they kind of expected crap and ended up having it be a really good movie. It also, just like with Kong Skull Island, I was a little shocked at how much blood and gore and people getting ripped in half this got with a PG-13. Some filmmakers, not to get off on a tangent, they're, they're really pushing this PG-13. I was really surprised at how graphic this was for a PG-13 mainstream, you know, Warner Brothers horror movie. Well, I was kind of talking about this the other day because uh, somebody was was not arguing but was discussing with me about because venom is they're going to put venom out as pg-13 even though they filmed it as an r-rated film because uh, they're trying to sony's trying to court disney so uh, the the big difference is when you're filming something PG-13 and you're pushing boundaries, you can kind of push it as far as you can go. And then, you know, you'll have to dial it back a little bit. But when you're filming something as an R-rated film, they're filming it one way. And then now they have to remove the offending bits in order to be PG-13. So essentially what that means is there's going to be a lot of off-screen kills. There's going to be segments that are going to be cut out completely because there's you know no way for them to to there's nothing they could do to fix it in order to make it pg-13 or you know because they've already filmed it as an r-rated sequence so they'll have to uh you know censor language and uh it just it always ends up hurting the film uh significantly when you do it in reverse so that i think is one of the reasons why we're getting pg-13 films that are kind of pushing it a little bit more is because they're get they're trying to go as far as they can and then uh instead of being filmed one way and then having to take everything else you know out we also need to ask for this type of movie like i said i don't consider the jurassic park movies to be this in this genre what about something like the blob movies I mean, the original Blob was running around a city. It wasn't wrecking the city so much, you know. And then the Blob remake, that, you know, the 88 one, that was wrecking a city. I would I would say the 88 Blob would qualify for this episode. Uh, kind of, because uh, it's, uh, I mean... It was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and, uh, and it was towards the end, you know, being fought by the military. And it, it was, was also flipping over cars and it was breaking buildings open and stuff. And, so yeah, I mean, it was really messing things up. I mean, the original, it got big, but in the remake, like it got really big. What would you say are, if you had to arbitrarily pick, what would you say are the best giant monster wrecking a city movies? I mean, like me, I would put them. 20 million miles to earth kong skull island and i would even say this one technically doesn't count but does i would even add war of the worlds and earth versus the flying saucers yes they're not giant monsters they're giant spaceships wrecking the city i don't know if that's close enough I, I don't know. I think that really they're not giant. Like if they if they did something where they were turning creatures into giant monsters that were doing their bidding or something. But really, it was just the flying sauce. The saucers were just kind of messing things up. So but I don't giant really... flying saucers, you know, blowing buildings up. It, it, OK, so well, that's not an alive. alien. That's an alien attack movie, though. Or an alien invasion movie. Okay, well, Earth in Earth versus the Flying Saucers, they steal our brains. Does that count? They do, and that scared the hell out of me. Oh, that cause... oh, the, the, the scene where the, the guy's brain is all illuminated in his head. Yeah, that screamed yeah. the hell out of me when I was a kid. I... I was expecting a you know this is a G-rated '50s monster movie, and I'm like, oh my god, they just stole that dude's brain. For for about a year, I wouldn't look up. Cause like, cause that was the thing. He looked up and he saw the thing in the ceiling and it like, it like, you know, read his brain and I'm like, ah, kind of scary. <laughs> so. I, I still say in War of the Worlds, that scene where, where I think it's Sylvia Van Buren is walking. Oh, she, she's in Naked Monster, by the way, too. Uh, where she's walking and the, the Martian puts his like three suction cup oh, hand over yeah. her shoulder. Oh, that scene is scary as hell, man. Yeah, that and, and right around that same, when you see the tricolor, you know, 
face of the, that terrified me so it's still creepy i know people now lame but no i think that was that was really scary very well done too but and we didn't we didn't talk about gamera at all uh giant turtle i don't want to talk about kenny he is i don't want to talk about kenny he's the friend of all children (sighs) i hate kenny so much he is he is really neat he is full of turtle meat (laughs) we've been eating gamera um i love gamera of that, you know, because, I mean, Gamera and Godzilla always sort of had that little rivalry in films, even if it was unofficial, at least among the fans. Gamera never did anything for me. I'm a Godzilla man. Sorry. I mean, I love Godzilla. I mean, Godzilla is, is my go-to monster of choice. It's probably the same for a lot of people. There's there's just a certain something about Gamera. I've, I've just, I've... Uh, now, I will say that I was introduced Gamera from Mystery Science Theater 3000. I had since gone and watched a lot of the the older, you know, the black and white Gamera. I watched some of the newer, uh, Gam- you know, it was a Guardian of the Universe and stuff. And uh, I've really grown an affinity for Gamera. I would say, you know, Godzilla number one, Gamera number two. <sighs> You're useless. It goes King Kong number one, Godzilla number two, Gamera like number 24. Oh, God. You you again with the giant monkey. King Kong is a fantastic movie. 33. King Kong 33 is right. a fantastic movie, man. It doesn't matter. Even the Honestly, I think the giant monkey stuff might actually be the weakest stuff in the movie. I love all the stuff in the jungle and with the dinosaurs. And even though I know the spider pit scene isn't actually in the original, but that's a whole different story. You know, you've got all this this great mystery on the island. In a weird way, the monkey is actually the, somewhat of a disappointment. It's a brilliant buildup, though. All right. Well, how about... Godzilla 1, Gamera 2, and then Frankenstein Conquers the World 3. The kid didn't even have a front tooth. <laughs> I don't care if he had Frankenstein's heart. We don't, that, we that don't that he got from monkey. the Nazis. We don't need a giant monkey. We've got giant Frankenstein. And, and I used to, when I was, for some reason, when I, I think I, the first time I saw this, uh, I'm almost positive I saw it on, um, on Monster Vision. Thought for the longest time the movie was called, uh, Attack of the 50 Foot Frankenstein. Well then, to end this out, why do we like these movies so much? Is it like a catharsis? Where we get to see, you know, it's usually the same couple of cities. It's either, you know, Tokyo or New York or Chicago. You you never see Milwaukee getting stomped on by a giant monster or anything like that. Is it some sort of a weird catharsis that we just like to see the giant monster running around and wrecking shit? and then getting defeated why why do are have we been drawn to these since the 30s i think it really comes down to the fact that um it, it you don't want to see it out in like the you know out in nebraska or somewhere because there's not going to be as much destruction you know if you've got a giant monster in the middle of a city it's it also shows its scale you know if it's taller than a skyscraper then holy god this thing's huge but if you've got it you know out in the middle of a cornfield it's not going to be quite as impressive and it's like it's not really going to destroy all that much stuff you want to see destruction on a huge scale and uh that's just why I think people want to see it in the city. It's not really – it's just that there's more to do. So I think that's really what it all boils down to. And I think in general, I mean, when you're when you're in the city, sometimes, you know, if you're stuck in traffic or if you work in, in a big city and you're just getting, like, frustrated with how everything uh, is, you're like, eh, you, you kind of are thinking back to, you know, Godzilla smashing up the trains and uh, it, it is a bit of uh, catharsism. And I, I just look at it as it's just always been fun. I, I don't understand why people can't understand it's just not, you know, it's just fun. And my problem is most of these, though, didn't write the human characters very well. And I think that's sort of the problem. You guys, one of the things, go back to them. You really identified with all the characters. Even the ones they added in the third act, you know, all the military people, somehow they made them three-dimensional characters in a 50s giant ant movie. We couldn't do this in the 70s or 80s giant monster movies. What the hell? That's true. I think uh, that's a big problem we have with with found footage movies. Uh, I talked about it in a video I did on found footage uh, where they 
keep making the characters unlikable and there's really no reason for it like modern slasher movies do this too i don't understand why they want us to see the characters get killed i think because we've we've got a lot of people that grew up watching slasher films are now directing these movies and they're taking it to the degree of they grew up loving you know jason Voorhees, freddy krueger and whatnot that they want us to hate the kids or the characters or whatnot and they want you know the killer to really yeah you know we we hate them i i hope he dies first you know so i think that's a lot of where that comes from instead of making it where you like the characters and you feel bad about them getting killed and you're rooting for the final girl or whoever to take on uh the big bad slasher whoever it may be we end up rooting for them and then really kind of being like you you want the slasher you know you want the murderer to end up being the hero (laughs) when really it's like no you're rooting for the wrong people wrong team Wrong team. So I think that's it. It's like we get a lot of movies where, uh, you just are, you're, they're making the characters unlikable and, uh, they need to, they need to knock that off. You know who is likable? Cecil. Where Aww. can people find him? I'm very likable. You can find me being likable, usually. <laughs> over at uh, goodbadflix.com as well as goodbadflix on Twitch, Twitter, Facebook, and 1201beyond.com. And YouTube, of course. God, my, my bread and butter. And you can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. You guys should really go out and pick up Naked Monster. Ted's a good guy, and it's a legitimately funny film. So go and pick up the re-release and keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night. Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.